Well, I thank God for the privilege of addressing you all today. I wish I could be with you in person, uh, but I pray the Lord will use our time together, uh, even mediated through technology such as this. But the topic I've been asked to speak about is the role of prayer in pastoral ministry and in a pastor's life. Uh, I believe this is a crucial subject, one that's very close to the heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I mean, if we take even just a tour of Luke's gospel account, we see very clearly that the Lord Jesus was a man of prayer. So in Luke chapter 3, we read that Jesus was praying uh, at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended on him. In Luke chapter 5, we're told that it was Jesus' regular habit to withdraw to a, a solitary place where he could pray. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we see Jesus praying all night before he chooses his 12 apostles. In Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we read that Jesus was praying right before Peter confesses that he's the Christ. Uh, later in that disciple, we, or sorry, rather later in that chapter, we see Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain, and we're told that the reason why he went up was so that they could pray. Of course, maybe most famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples to pray. And then he himself went and prayed to the Father. He woke them up a little bit later and again tells them to pray. Now, that commitment on the part of the Lord Jesus to prayer was something that he expected would follow or would carry over to his followers. Uh, Jesus obviously expected that his disciples, that you and I, would be people who pray a lot. He said things like, when you pray pray this way, or when you fast, but he assumed that these disciplines would be part of his followers' daily lives. Right as you read through the book of Acts, you, you read Paul's letters, you see the early church prayed like crazy. In fact, Paul explicitly instructed the churches to pray in many different ways. The disciples were praying together when the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost. They were praying for Peter's release from prison. They were, it seems, praying all the time. Prayer is important. It is expected of Christ's disciples. And so a healthy and faithful church will be a church that prays. A church that prays together when the body gathers, and also a church that's marked by the private prayers of its individual members. And because that's true, an important part of pastoral ministry will be our personal ministry of prayer and then also the way we lead our churches to pray. With the time that we have together today, I'd like to think about just a couple of the Bible's, uh, or a couple aspects of the Bible's teaching on prayer. I don't want to think so much specifically about what your daily prayer life should look like in terms of practical advice for getting up early in the morning and devoting a certain amount of time to prayer. Instead, uh, what I'd like to do is just look a little bit at what the Bible teaches about the nature of prayer. I think that if we see the nature of prayer clearly, uh, we will find ourselves motivated and equipped to pray well in our daily lives. So specifically, I'd like to examine three things together. Uh, first, the need for prayer. Second, the foundation of our prayer. And then finally, the priorities of our prayer. So first, the, the need for prayer. Why is it exactly that pastors need to pray? 
Well, we could answer that question in any number of ways, but I think that on some level, uh, all of our answers boil down to this. Pastoral ministry is an exercise in the impossible. Think about what it is that you and I are called to do as pastors. Uh, Our job is to call spiritually dead people to life using nothing more than our mouths and the Word of God. We are called to heal marriages, to bind up hearts that have been broken by sin and suffering, to return wayward sheep to the flock, to keep the souls entrusted to our care, faithful and hopeful until the day when the Lord Jesus returns or when they go to be with him. I don't know about you, friend, but that that list of job descri- that list of job duties for a pastor, it makes me feel overwhelmed. It makes me feel weak and inadequate. Right? The, the Apostle Paul himself described his ministry, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he was left asking the question: who is sufficient for these things? Who in their right mind thinks that they have what it takes to, to execute the tasks of pastoral ministry? Right? The answer is clear, not Paul, not me, and I'm guessing not you either. And so pastoral ministry is absolutely dependent on the powerful working of God through his Holy Spirit. Right? Without God's intervention, no one ever comes to Christ in faith. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of God's word will just clang usefully off the ears of our hearers. It will just... They'll just bang around and and fall to the ground uselessly in our churches. It'll be unheard, unheeded, and unloved by our people. Unless God sustains you and God protects you, you'll never be able to persevere in the ministry. You will burn out or give up or disqualify yourself. And so prayer is what we do when we realize how absolutely dependent we are on God for absolutely every part of our ministry. Right, and that's actually the point, isn't it? Do you realize that God could accomplish his purposes in our ministries without us praying? He doesn't need us to pray before he goes to work. But prayer is an expression of the desire for the coming of God's kingdom. Prayer is where we cry out to him for him to glorify his name, to make his name hallowed, as Jesus says in the the Lord's Prayer. God calls us to pray so that we will recognize our need and so that we'll know exactly who deserves all the glory when we see our prayers answered. The late theologian J.I. Packer mused on the enormity of our task and our utter dependence on God. He said uh, that these facts, that we are dependent on God, ought to drive us to prayer. It is God's intention that they should drive us to prayer. God means us, in this as in other things, to recognize and confess our impotence, to tell him that we rely on him alone, and to plead with him to glorify his name. It is his way regularly to withhold his blessing until his people start to pray. If you and I are too proud or too lazy to ask, we need not expect to receive. See, brothers, if you don't sense that you're not in control, 
then you probably aren't going to seek God in prayer. Why should you? If you have the resources in yourself to, to build a church and to have a faithful ministry, then you don't actually need God's help, do you? You could just try harder. You can come up with new strategies. You can just try again. But think for a moment about how little of your life you actually have control over. Think about how little in terms of the life of your church is actually within your power and control. So my, my friends, do you see your need for God's help? If your ministry is not marked by faithful, regular prayer, could it be that somehow you've become dulled to your need for God? Can, could it be that you, you fail to see how desperately you need God to intervene in the lives of the people you serve? John Calvin said that all prayer is born of inadequacy and desperation. So any failure in our lives to pray might be a failure of our desperation, a failure for us to see just how inadequate we are for the task. But brothers, you should never preach a sermon over which you have not labored in prayer. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon used to walk up to the pulpit, and he said that it was his practice with each step as he approached the pulpit, as he prepared to preach God's word, he would take a step and he would say in his mind, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And he would take another step and he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And another step and he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then he would get up and he would declare God's word with unction and power. There's a story about the time that the congregation gathered to hear the great Puritan minister, John Flavel. It was scheduled to preach, but then five minutes went by and he didn't show up. And then 10 minutes, and then 15 minutes, and the congregation waited anxiously until finally they sent one of the elders to go looking for him, and they, they found him in his study. And the elder listened through the door and he could hear him saying, I'm not going out there without you. I'm not going out there without you. A third time, I'm not going out there without you. The elder stood listening through the door as, as Flavel just repeated himself over and over again. So finally he opened the door and he saw him on his knees praying to the Lord, I'm not going out there without you. Brothers, we dare not go to our flocks. We dare not preach or disciple or counsel or evangelize. We dare not go out without him. So we have to pray. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to think about today, and that is the foundation of our prayer. If our need for prayer is, is rooted in us, our inadequacy, our need, then the foundation of our prayer is the character of God. Specifically, the, the prayer life of a faithful pastor is erected and built on the foundation of God's power and his great fatherly love. Let's think about each one of those things. Uh, in order to do that, look at a little story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11. If you remember the context, Jesus has just finished instructing his disciples in what we call the Lord's Prayer, and now he wants to motivate them to pray uh, even more. So in Luke chapter 11, if you look at verses 5 to 13, Jesus says, And he said to him, Which of you, 
who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if he asks his, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I wonder if you can see there that everything that Jesus says depends on the truth that God is the only one who can help us. I remember back in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray for the Father's kingdom to come. Right? He's, he's reminding us that prayer is rooted in the fact that God is our king. He is sovereign over all things. He is the only one who can help us with our needs. And we see that there in verses 9 and 10 of, of Luke chapter 11. Right? God is the one who is able to answer our prayers, right? He, he's powerful enough to do whatever he says. And so he invites us, ask, knock, seek, Jesus says there. It's an open invitation because we will never exhaust God's riches and his resources. We will never find something that's truly good, that's beyond God's power. We're never going to run up against the limits of God's adequacy. Friends, God is completely sovereign over all things. The very act of prayer is a way of acknowledging that God is in control. Right? You wouldn't pray to someone who didn't have the power to help you, right? Uh, you wouldn't ask me to bless your church and bring many people to Christ, right? I don't have that power. But God does. Right? A child doesn't ask his friend for an egg. He asks his father because his father is the one who has the resources. In the same way, we pray because God has a good and sovereign plan. We pray because he's powerful and able to accomplish all his holy will. We pray because God promises to hear us and to bless us when we pray. He doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we think is best. Right? The fact is we don't know what's best. Otherwise, we would be God. But we go to God. We go to one who has all wisdom and all power. We ask him to help us. So brothers, I wonder if there's a situation in your life, in your ministry, that seems hopeless. I wonder if there are problems or, or even cares that you've simply stopped praying about. Or maybe you've never prayed about them to begin with. But do you realize no matter how complicated, how difficult that situation seems, God does not lack the power to help you that he's never caught in a situation where things have gotten out of hand. You can be sure that whatever you face, God can help you. Take it to him in prayer because he's a sovereign God. Right? Prayer is, is one of the ways that we uh, pray that the God's kingdom would come. When we pray for our friends to come to Christ, right? when we pray that God would help me 
be rid of a sin that's sort of clinging closely in my life. When we pray that God would cause our churches to grow in love, right? I'm praying in those situations for things that I can't necessarily do, but God can. I know God loves to do those things. God has a kingdom that he is extending. When I pray, I'm just getting on board with that plan, with that program. But if we understand God's power, if we understand that he has a, a good and gracious plan, we'll go to him boldly with all of our concerns and desires. God is sovereign. He is powerful. Otherwise, there'd be no point in praying to him. But there's something else about God that we have to believe if we're going to be faithful in prayer, and that is he's also our loving Heavenly Father. Right? Isn't that how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who's in heaven. That's significant. He doesn't teach us to pray to God primarily as our employer, even as our creator or king, though, though those things are certainly true. Jesus says that when we go to God in prayer, we are going to a Father who loves us. I mean, can you see how important that is? If God were all-powerful, but didn't love us, if he wasn't on our side, if he wasn't for us, but he was against us, if he was even just indifferent or distant, well, we'd never want to go to him. And so Jesus teaches us that he's our father in heaven, that when we go to him, uh, in the words of the little story that he tells there in Luke 11, we go to him like a, like a son going to his dad to ask for some bread or an egg to eat. And this is why Jesus prayed so much. He, better than any other human being who's ever lived, understood what it meant to be a child of his heavenly father, to be his son. Right, to encourage us to pray, Jesus tells that little story in Luke 5, uh, Luke 11, 5 to 8 that we read a few moments ago. Right, it's not too hard to understand. But Jesus asks basically about a situation that would have been common in those days. There were no uh, hotels particularly. Uh, people would travel oftentimes in the evening because it was too hot during the day. There's no telephone or email. Uh, communication was pretty much non-existent. And so it wasn't unheard of that a friend or a family member might show up at your door in the middle of the night. Right? You might not know they're coming. They're just there all of a sudden. And, and so this is a hospitality culture, this, this day and age that Jesus lived in. It, it was unheard of to refuse hospitality to someone who came to you. And so the guy in this parable has an unexpected late-night visitor. And the problem is he doesn't have any bread. Uh, his family has eaten everything. Bread was often baked just once in the day, and that there's no way for this host to go just make more suddenly in the middle of the night. So Jesus imagines for us this little incident where a man knocks on his neighbor's door late at night, right? The neighbor's already locked up, the family's in bed, and so Jesus asks, look, isn't that guy going to get up and he's going to give his neighbor bread that he can give to his visitors? He's going to do that even though the guy's being rude, knocking on the door in the middle of the night. Now, he's not going to necessarily do it with love and good feelings, but he's going to do it because the guy was impudent enough to come knock on his door in the middle of the night. Now, here's the thing you have to understand if you're going to understand prayer. Jesus is not saying that God is like a grumpy neighbor that you have to wake up in the middle of the night to get bread from. No, what Jesus is saying is like, is look, 
if you go next, if you can go next door, and your grumpy, tired neighbor will give you bread because you need it, because you asked for it. If in that situation you can count on your neighbor, even if he doesn't like you very much, he's going to get up and give you bread because you asked for it. If that's the case, then what Jesus is saying is, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you, who cares about you, who even sent his Son to die for you, how much more will he give you the things that you need when you ask him? Right in verses 9 to 12 there of Luke 11, Jesus presses it even just a little bit further. He asks, who among you doesn't understand the love of a father? Fathers give good gifts to their children. Right? Kids don't have to worry about whether or not their dad is going to take care of them. It's one of the great things about being a kid. A kid ought not to be anxious and worried because dad's got it taken care of. Right? No father would give his child a snake or a scorpion, right? No, a father gives his child good gifts, things that he needs. And so Jesus says again, look, if that's true of you, you sinful human beings, if you couldn't imagine a good father giving a bad gift to his son, how much more will your heavenly father, your perfect heavenly father, only ever give you good things? Friend, I wonder if you believe this, that the God who controls the universe and who hears your prayer loves you as his child, that God hears your prayer like a tender-hearted father hears his son's request for bread. Brothers, this is how we make sense of prayer. God doesn't always answer exactly according to our wishes. Right? Otherwise, we would be God. He would just be a genie in a bottle who, who carries out our commands. There are times when God doesn't give us what we're asking for because we don't know it, but we're really asking for a scorpion or a snake. And so our lovingly Father says, no, actually, that's not good for you, and I don't want you to have it. God may graciously not give us the things that we ask for. He might give us something that seems unpleasant, something that seems like a snake or a scorpion at the time. But you can be sure that it's good because he loves us. You can be sure that if you knew what God knew, and if you loved like God loved, you would do the very same thing. And so, Pastor, I wonder if you trust that God is your Father. When you think of God, do you think of him as your loving Heavenly Father, as one who's anxious to care for you and to meet your needs? Or do you actually walk around all day ministering to your people like an orphan, always worried about how you're going to provide for yourself and for your church? Friends, a Christian is one who has God as his father. And Jesus says here that to have God as father is to have a wonderful provision for everything you need. And so there's a wonderful invitation and a wonderful incentive to prayer. The Bible tells us over and over again that we who are in Christ are adopted children of the King. That the, the churches that we serve are full of adopted sons and daughters. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it reminds us that in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace. God's plan has always been to adopt us into his family. In Romans 8.15, we're told about the connection between our adoption and our prayers. It says there, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, the reality of our adoption into God's family must inform the way that we pray. Jesus assumes here in Luke 11 that it will. Children go to their fathers in order to have their needs met. It's really not that complicated. Can you see the boldness and the confidence that we can have as we go to God in prayer? You can be sure that you are not annoying your heavenly father when you pray to him. He is not reluctant to hear you plead for the souls of the lost in your community. He is not reluctant to hear you plead for the holiness of your church. In fact, he insists on it. He graciously commands that we ask him for these things. The prayers of a pastor are built on the foundation of God's character, his sovereign power, and his fatherly love. And that brings us to the third thing for us to look at together, and that is the priorities of prayer. So we've seen that the nature, or our need for prayer, our need for prayer is rooted in our inadequacy. But we've seen the foundation of prayer, right, is built on the sovereignty and the, the love of God. But let's finish by thinking a little bit about the priorities that we ought to have in prayer. So I wonder what kinds of things you typically pray for. What prayer requests comprise your prayer life? But if we made a transcript of all the things about which you most frequently pray, what will we conclude about what's most important to you? What it is that you truly care about? What it is that is your priority? Do you pray mostly about health and healing from disease? Do you pray mostly about the provision of money and daily necessities? Do you pray most passionately about the addition of people to your church or protection from your enemies or deliverance from besetting woes and temptations? But those are all good things to pray for. We see examples in the Bible of, pray, of people praying for all of those kinds of things. But those shouldn't be the only kinds of things we pray for. We might actually get some insight into the the prayer life of a pastor by looking at the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul, actually quite frequently in his letters, if you notice, as you're reading through Paul's letters, notice this. He often tells the church how it is that he's praying for them. Now, Paul tells these churches that he loves so dearly. He communicates them how it is that he's praying for them. And he does this very frequently. I just want to look with you with the time that we have, it's just one example in particular that Paul records for us. You could look at Thessalonians, Philippians, there's a lot of examples. Ephesians chapter 3, you'll see all sorts of different prayers that Paul writes down to let the church know how he's praying. But I want to look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and going to verse 23. I think here we'll see some priorities that ought to shape a pastor's prayer life. So earlier in Ephesians 1, Paul meditates on the innumerable blessings that all believers have received in Christ. And he says, For this reason, in verse 15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is his innumerable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, there's a lot we could say, and Paul says lots of wonderful things about the Lord here, but, but just notice what it is that he asks the Lord for. There in verse 17, he says that he, he asks that the, the Father would give the Spirit to the church. Notice that there, he says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, why does Paul want God to particularly pour out his spirit on the church at Ephesus? What, what end does Paul have in mind? Does he really want them to speak in tongues? Does he desperately want them to be able to perform dramatic miracles? Well, it says there in verse 17 that, that he wants the Ephesians to have uh, an experience of the Holy Spirit that will help them to know God better. He asks God to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, some translations say, so that you may know him better. Right? Paul wants the church to know God more. Friends, that's because one of the most important things in all the world is for a Christian to know his or her God. Now, many of the people in our churches are, are going to be tempted to settle for so much less than that. You see, people will settle for just having the vaguest sense of who God is and how he relates to him. People settle for knowing just quite a lot about God. Many Christians could teach a theology class or write a, a doctoral dissertation on the attributes of God, but that's not what Paul's praying for here. He's not praying that the church would know more about God. Right? Because just knowing a lot about God doesn't mean you actually know him. It doesn't mean that you that you love him, that you live and suffer and rejoice and persevere in light of the precious relationship you have with God. So Paul here prays that the church would know God better. Uh, the word that's used here in verse 17 for knowledge is epignosis. It, it means a deep, thorough, passionate love, or a knowledge rather. Uh, Paul wants the Ephesians with all their faith and love, to know God deeply and more. And so, brothers, that should be our priority as well. We ought to ask the Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, to build up our churches in knowledge and understanding of God. We should not waste our time pursuing miraculous signs and trying to gather large crowds. What we need more than anything else is to truly know God. 
This is what we ought to pray for, what we ought to look for, what we ought to invest our lives in as we try to get it for ourselves and as we try to give it to others. But it's not just a vague knowledge of God in the abstract that Paul's interested in there. No, he's praying that they would have knowledge. And then in verse 18, he prays that same prayer just in another way. He prays that, the eye, that their eyes might be enlightened. In verse 18, the eyes of your hearts being enlightened. You may know the hope to which he's called you. Right? Specifically, Paul wants them to see three things here. Uh, first, we see that Paul wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. He wants their, their, their minds to be illuminated. He wants them to see something they can't see. And he, he tells us here three things. The first thing is, is that they would see the hope to which the Father has called them. Uh, you see there in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Paul wants them to see their hope. We sometimes think of hope as something that is uncertain, right? A desire for something that we, we can't be sure of. But for the Christian, our hope is rooted in something that is rock solid. Our hope is not just wishful thinking, but it is rooted, Paul says, in our election from before the foundation of the world. It is, it is sealed in us by the Holy Spirit, who's the down payment of the future blessing that we will surely receive. God has called us, and for that reason we have hope that we will go to be with him in heaven, that we will see God one day and finally be free from sin and death forever. We have hope that God will one day, according to Revelation 21, wipe away every tear from our eyes and make every painful thing belong to that class of things called the former things. That is our hope. That is what we have when we have the Lord Jesus Christ. According to 1 Peter 1.3, this is a living hope. According to Titus 2.12, it is a blessed hope. According to Hebrews 6.11, it is a sure hope. And brothers, this hope makes all the difference. Right? We live in a world where we don't think about the future very often. And we don't Think about eternity very much. But our hope is, is the key to the Christian life. Our confidence about our future is what gives us strength to persevere and endure and to keep going in ministry. Our hope for the future is what helps us to endure difficulties and losses here in this life. Hebrews 11 talks about the, the saints in the Old Testament who endured difficulty with faith because they trusted that this world wasn't the only world and it wasn't the best world. Uh, they saw a city uh, without found, uh, whose builder was the Lord, a home that God was preparing for them. And so here, Paul prays that like those Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11, we might have eyes to see, that we might truly know the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing Paul prays that we'd be able to see there in, in chapter 1 is God's riches. See that in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Friends, this is an amazing truth. Paul prays that the church at Ephesus would have their eyes opened to the fact that God considers them to be his inheritance. Paul is praying that they would understand that they are treasured by God. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Not, not for the saints, not an inheritance that he's going to give them, but Paul says an inheritance in the saints. God looks out on his people and he says, that is my treasure. This is what I've purchased with the blood of my son. Think about it. God owns the entire universe. Everything that exists from the Taj Mahal to the Hope Diamond. But, but it says here that we are the riches of his glorious inheritance. God looks at us and considers us treasure. I don't have to remind you that that's not because we're so lovely. We are not God's inheritance because there's something so wonderful in us, because we're so clever and holy and righteous and handsome. You know, the Bible says repeatedly, we are God's treasure because he chose to love us. He decided to love us and treasure us because that's what pleased him. And brothers, this should move us to wonder, to awe, to love, to gratitude towards God. And it should move us to pray for an ever-increasing sense that we are loved like this. The third thing that Paul says, he prays for the Ephesians, that they would know the great power of God. You see that there in verses 19 and 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here in these verses, Paul is just stacking up his synonyms, trying to give some expression to truths that are greater than anything we can imagine. Right? Paul talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power, the working of his great might. And where is that power most clearly seen? We see there in verse 20, Paul says, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right, what kind of power does it require to bring a man back to life after he's been crucified? There's no power on earth that could do that. Right? Only heavenly power could raise Jesus from the dead. And that's exactly what happened. And so we might be tempted to doubt God's power. Does God actually have the power to help me? Can he help me with the besetting sins in my life? Can he help me be a minister of his grace to the besetting sins in the lives of our congregation? Right? We have difficult relationships. Does God have the power to help? Your children perhaps are struggling. Your health perhaps is failing. You have to decide, does God have the power to help? In that case, Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, and I think he would pray for us as well, that we would have eyes to see, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened to know something that we might not be seeing right now. And that is particularly the immeasurable power of God. I think the Apostle Paul would, would redirect our eyes to the resurrection of Jesus, to the risen Christ to the fact that if God the Father can raise Jesus from the dead, there is nothing in our life that he can't handle. Friends, the good news is that God doesn't have simply enough power. Paul says here that he has immeasurable riches according to the working of his might. 
He has all the power, all the strength you could ever dream of. So in Ephesians 3.20, Paul writes that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Oh, brothers, the good news is there is resurrection power at work in your life and in the lives of the Christians in your church. This resurrection power has saved us from our sins and it is sanctifying us, making us holy, helping us to persevere in the faith. But if we're honest, I think most of the people in our churches don't live like that's so. Because of ignorance or, or sin or unbelief, uh, so many of us live like a, like a power tool that's not plugged into the wall. And so we have to work. We have to plead with people that they would see the great power uh, at work in Christ's resurrection, the great power that is available through God the Father on behalf of his people. We have to pray that God would open their eyes to see it, that God would, as it were, grab that plug and plug it into the wall. Friends, can you see what Paul's praying for the church? He prays that their eyes would be enlightened to the hope and to the riches and to the power of God. Notice he doesn't pray that these things would be given to them. He doesn't pray, God, please make these people your treasured inheritance. He doesn't say, God, please uh, give these people the access to your power. He doesn't say, God, please give these people something to hope in. No, Paul understands that we actually already have all of those things. But what we need is to have our eyes opened so that we can see it. Right? In, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing that God has withheld from us. We have hope. We have an inheritance in heaven. We are God's treasure. We have God's power working on our behalf. Pastor, your church already has all of those things. You don't have to pray that God would do that for you. You have to pray that God would open the eyes of your heart and the eyes of uh, the hearts of your people to see the truth and reality of it. We have every spiritual blessing. We have the resurrection power of God. All there is is for us to see it. What our people need more than anything else are eyes that can perceive it. As we conclude, just think about a problem in your church right now. A situation that seems like it could never possibly end well. A situation where your pastoral capacities are being stretched far beyond your abilities. Pastor, I wonder if you could begin to pray, along with Paul, that these people, if they are indeed in Christ, that these people would begin to see the great love that God has for them. That they would more fully comprehend and delight in the hope, the unshakable hope that they have in Christ. That they would see the, the incredible power that they have in God uh, at their service to change, to shape them, to give them affections for Christ. Pastor, could you begin to pray for yourself? That God would help you to shepherd the flock that he's given to you. And that you could see them the way that God sees them. That you could see yourself this way. God has promised to be there for you with everything you need because he loves you in Christ. Pray that God would give 
you and your people new eyes. Pray along with Paul that your eyes would be enlightened so that you can see all that he has for you in Christ. My brothers, pastoral ministry is hard work. We are inadequate for the task, but we have a God who is able to do far more than all we ask and imagine. And that God loves us very much in Christ. And so we should pray to him. And let's do that together now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we delight in being your children. We, we delight that we can come before you even now, not concerned that we will be turned away, not concerned that you're disinterested in hearing us. Father, it gives such joy to our hearts to come before you knowing that you love us, knowing that you have all power to do all that we need and that you won't withhold from us any good thing. And so, Father, you've told us to ask and so we ask. You've told us to knock and so we are knocking right now. Would you help us by your Holy Spirit? Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we might understand more fully your incredible power, your magnificent love for us, the great hope that we have. We pray that you would shape our pastoral ministries by those things. We pray that we would be pastors who lead their churches in prayer and by prayer. We pray that you would wean us off self-dependence and self-reliance. We pray that you'd show us our inadequacy and your sufficiency so that we might go often to you in prayer. We pray that you would do more than, than everything we can ask and imagine in our churches through us for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen, brothers.